We good? All right. Uh, go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 4. The study in 1 John, if um, you know this, if you've been with us for most of it or, or all of it, um, the study in 1 John has been such a, a spiritual encounter, uh, for me at least. I hope it has been for you as well. Um, 1 John, in James it says the word of God is like a mirror. And it also says that uh, we shouldn't be like men that go look in the mirror and then walk away and forget what they just saw. Um, and the book of 1 John is, is so clearly a mirror that is held up to us, to the church, uh, to individual saints, uh, where we see... Um, what we are and at the same time what we should be, maybe like the, the stains on the face that need to be washed off. Um, I hope it's been a blessing for you. I hope First uh, John has been uh, for you all that it's, it's been for me. And we're over halfway done now, and we're starting chapter 4. And in, in this passage here, we return to something that John started to talk about before, which is truth and error. And it's another way he provides that mirror and says, hey, here's how you can keep that face clean that you see. You know, this, this is the word of God that reveals to you who you are, who you uh, ought to be. And he, he provides us, um, well, he provides us with hope that someday we can have clean faces. And this is an interesting thing, actually, that in the, the temple or the tabernacle before that, you had... Um, uh, what, what it says in my Bible, the, the, the laver. I don't know if different translations have improved on that yet by now, but the, the laver was the sink, essentially, that the priests would wash in. But more than that, it, it was clean. It was, it, was a, it was bronze. It was polished metal. And it would provide both a reflection for the priest to see like, oh, you know, you've got something in your teeth right here, and the water used to wash their faces. It's both... Um, the, the, the mirror that, that reveals to them any sort of blemish that may need to be cleaned up, but it also provides the water for the cleansing necessary. And the word of God for us, which is a living word that does not return to God, to, to him void, um, is like that for us. It provides a mirror, but it also, we, we come to it knowing that the Lord himself provides the means for cleansing necessary. Um, so let's go uh, before the word of God, before the mirror of God's word, the water of God's word, with that same attitude. Um, let's read from verse 1 through 6, and then I'll pray again for our time, and we'll, we'll study this passage. 1 John chapter 4 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world. Therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. 
And even though we're not going to get to this verse this week, this will be the starting point next week. I'm going to read verse 7 anyway. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And Jesus, we pray uh, your blessing on the preaching of your word, your blessing on every ear, um, that, that we would be given uh, spiritual insight, spiritual ability to hear from you. We want there to be no obstacle in us, in any of us, to prevent your Holy Spirit from speaking freely to each of us. We pray that you would, just as you've promised to do, lead us into all truth, um, that you, Holy Spirit, would guard us from error that we see in this passage and we know from experience we are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. So we pray, bind our wandering hearts to you. Guard us from error. Lead us in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So... John at this point, writing to the church, writing to his little children, his little family, um, he's writing an encouragement in the center section of the book to walk in truth and love. And, and that's what we've seen so far in 1 John. Here in chapter 4, we're starting to repeat a whole lot. Um, that's going to be the way it is for the rest of the study. A lot of reminders. We need reminding. That's okay. Verses 1 through 6 that we just read deal with the truth portion of that equation. Verses 7 through the end of the chapter deals more with the love part, which is why I just kind of, you know, we dipped our toe in the water in verse 7 to see that we're, we're going to loop around and talk about love more next week. Um, and, and even though, you know, I divide it verse 1 through 6, truth, verse 7 through, you know, 21, love, it, it's really impossible to draw that clean straight line through John's theology since these two ideas are so intricately connected. As you read through 1 John, you can't help but see that walking in love is walking in the truth. That's just what it is. Jesus says, I am the truth. Here in John, we see God is love. And fellowship with God is characterized by both of these things, truth and love, not opposites, not other, not two sides of one coin or anything. It's the same. In promoting these two central Christian principles, John addresses and warns of their opposites. Okay, he's encouraging truth, so he has to guard against error. He's encouraging the church, walk in love, so he has to warn them against hate and, and carelessness and apathy. In verses 1 through 6, he goes back to the errors that might come against the church, the, the dangerous heresies, the lies about Jesus that people were telling and still are, and the spiritual realities behind these heresies, which John unapologetically labels antichrist. Them's fighting words. Now, perhaps you notice that word antichrist in verse 3 and wonder, where is this headed? But if you've been with us for the rest of the study in 1 John, you know that this is not the first time we've come across this term. We've talked about this a lot in chapter 2. Uh, there is a true and a false anointing uh, a true and false christening that John talks about. There is the true Holy Spirit of God, and there are most definitely false spirits. Now we see that there, in verse 1 here that there is a true spirit, and there are many, many counterfeits. There are many, many false spirits. There is a holy God, God's spirit, and then there is a spirit of Antichrist, which John has said is already in the world. Chapter 3 ended with a brief note on the Holy Spirit. And now we're moving on in that argument and addressing the need to be aware of the unholy spirits. Now, the sermon that I preached uh, last, two weeks ago, where we, um, 
you know, we, we finished up chapter three. It was about confidence defeating condemnation and how these people received the letter. And these people that received John's letter, they could know that they are indeed children of God. And we've looked at chapter 5, verse 13, over and over and over again. We'll probably mention it every week that we're in 1 John, where John says, I'm writing this so that you may know you have eternal life. That's the point of the letter. I want you to know and not doubt that you have eternal life. He wants to give surety of their salvation. And chapter 3 ended with one of the evidences of saving faith that can give a believer confidence in the deepest part of their heart. That the And the evidence is this. Uh, their confidence is this, that the indwelling uh, of the Spirit of God is, is in, in their life. The Spirit dwells in them. It's chapter 324. You can glance at it. It says, Now he who keeps his commandment abides in him and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he get, has given us. John says, You know that Jesus is in you because the Spirit of God is in you. The Spirit gives us confidence that we're children of God. We, we saw that in Romans 8 and Galatians 4, and, and I'm not going to repeat all those passages because that was the sermon before. Uh, and that would that'd kind of be cheating. It'd be lazy. I wouldn't have to study as hard. Uh, the Spirit, we see, we've seen, produces fruit in our life, like love, which ties into John's arguments nicely. So while we do not rely on experience alone to tell us that we are saved, we do have some experiential evidence that gives us hope. The Spirit of God is in us, and you call God your Father. You know, for more on that, I guess, listen to the sermon from a couple weeks ago. But you can take hope and have confidence that God has saved you and is working in you and will finish the work that he's begun. But there's always that flip side, right? Because of ev for every person who needs the comfort of the reminder that the Holy Spirit of God is working in their life and is evidenced by the fruit of the Spirit and the knowledge that we are children of God and, is, and the changes that He's making in our life. For every one of those people that needs that message, there's also another, or maybe two more, that read the same words and, and we're tempted to think, well, I had a very spiritual experience once, therefore my status and standing before God cannot possibly be questioned. And John is saying, okay, brakes, <laughs> backpedal. John says, you, you can know he abides in you because of the spirit in you. Yes. And there was a guy in the back who got warm fuzzies one time at a worship service. And then, while well, discard, discarding sound doctrine and true beliefs about Jesus Christ, will say, well, I know where I stand because I'm a very spiritual person. And I've had some very spiritual experiences. And that is where my confidence lies. And in John's day, as in ours, it is very likely that these people who have had these profound experiences, who have their strong convictions based on personal experiences, will want to talk about it. They'll want to tell you all about it. They will want to tell people about their experience that their confidence is based in. And in today's church, like the church of John's day, there will... they. Uh, there will be those attending who are nice and thoughtful and kind and welcoming and they just want to affirm every little thing that someone might say or believe and these people are not discerning, uh, they are not wise and they are in danger due to their own gullible outlook on life and to these people, the nice people, those who would receive every message that any person might say because they seem nice. To these people, John says, don't believe everything you hear says, don't believe every spirit. And they're like, but that guy seemed really spiritual. And they're like, yeah, so what? Don't believe every spirit. And, and you know by now, if you've been following along in 1 John, you know by now that, that John writes to the church like there is little kids, right? 
He says, my little children. And he doesn't use, you know, the word for like adult children, like my spiritual descendants and then a firm handshake. He's like, you little kids, you know, you don't even know how to use silverware yet. That's why I've got to write you this letter. Um, he, he's not addressing them like they're adults, usually. He's calling them little children, little kids that aren't grown up yet, who need a parent around to help them navigate the world. And when John says, do not believe every spirit, I see a parent telling their kid, no, we do not put that in our mouths. Don't put that in your mouth, you know? It's like, do you know where that's been? Oh, you do. That's worse. Don't put that in your mouth, you know? Don't eat that. And there's a stage in every child's development where it's all input and no discernment, right? Everything goes in the mouth. That's not great. It's not safe. And John is saying, you are not spiritual omnivores. As Christians, we are not spiritual omnivores. We don't just accept it all and then like sprinkle a little Jesus around for seasoning and then say, everything's good. It's all really good. It's spiritual and everything's spiritual. No, don't put that in your mouth. John says, you're not spiritual omnivores. Please do not assume that because something is spiritual, that it is right. Um, and don't assume that because it's a Christian book that it's right. Don't assume that because someone used a Bible verse, they knew what they were talking about. Don't assume these things. Um, don't, even, don't assume that they're right because their motives were good. And don't assume that their motives were good just because what they said sounded right. You know, you need, we need discernment. You know, the only time we see Satan in the Gospels is when he's quoting scripture to Jesus. So, you know, discernment is necessary. John is behaving like a loving parent to his little children, telling them, you need to grow up a little bit. You need to learn to discern things. Do not believe every spirit. This implies, of course, it doesn't imply, it says explicitly that there are spirits and that they want to lie to you. Now, let's talk about that for a second. Okay, there are spirits, non-physical beings or personalities that exist and want to trick you into believing something that isn't true. Whoa. And let's just keep this in the context of who John is writing to. These spirits that are lying to you are in the church. John is writing to believers, remember? Um, there is uh, demonic activity in the world and in the church and we cannot forget it. We would be naive to imagine that's not the case. When Jesus talks about the church advancing against the gates of hell and promising victory over those gates, he has essentially promised us a spiritual confrontation. Paul, of course, was keenly aware of this, not only theologically, but practically. He had firsthand encounters with demon-possessed people, demonic attacks on himself personally. And Paul wrote the famous words in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. You know who he's talking about there, right? He's talking about spirits that aren't worth believing. He's talking about demons, evil spirits. Paul knows what he's talking about, and this is what he says uh, about the battle we're in. And if you know that there are spirits that we are to fight against, and that we must arm ourselves against, against them, against whom we take up the whole armor of God, it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that we should not believe every spirit, right? Um, Jesus says that the devil is the father of lies, that he's been a liar since the beginning. We can expect to be attacked and we can expect the attacks to be based around the truth. The battleground is around what is real.
what is true. From the beginning, Satan's attacks have been on the truth, questioning the truth, saying things like, did God really say? And when John says, don't believe every spirit, he's talking to people who had encountered false teachers and people coming into the church and say, oh, I believe in the same Jesus you do, but did it? Did you see him? Did you, was he really like this? Did you hear Jesus say this? Did God really say? And they would ask their own kind of questions along the same lines as the serpent in the garden. John warned against lying spirits, against spirits that should not be believed. How much more today in our pluralistic society where truth is subjective, where right and wrong are seen as gray areas, and you can have your truth and I can have my truth. How much more now should we be aware that lying spirits exist? You know, we live in a day and age when this statement of John may be just as controversial as his claims to Christ's bodily resurrection. You know, John says, don't believe everything. And there are people today who would say, oh, that sounds, that sounds spiritual. We must accept it as valid and true if it sounds that way. Or that, it's right for that person because they had their experience. When we say don't believe everything, that is just as controversial as, we, as saying God raises the dead, heals the sick, I get to live forever, heaven and hell are real. All of those things that people have a hard, hard time believing, this is just as difficult for people to understand and believe that we can't believe everything. When you talk to someone who says they are spiritual, that is still in some circles and has been throughout... Uh, the ages, a kind of description that people decided to claim for themselves by meaning like, well, I don't want to throw out the entire, all of metaphysics, but I don't really like organized religion. So they'll just say like, I'm spiritual. Be sure you ask them which spirit they're talking about because they're not wrong when they say they're spiritual. They'll look at you like you're crazy, but it's worth it. Listen, if you believe what John is saying here, that there are spirits that cannot be trusted and that they're in the church, then you have to also look at, at most self-proclaimed spiritual people. You have to see them as deceived. That, that's who they are. That is what they are. they are. They are lied to and they are believing a lie. They are deceived, which is exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. He says that the God of this age has blinded those who do not believe in the gospel. The God of this age, that's Satan. He's a spirit. Don't believe him. Now, Paul has plenty to say um, on this idea. John, uh, excuse me, I skipped a part. John doesn't want his kids to be blind. He doesn't want them to be spiritual omnivores. He doesn't want them to be deceived. And so he, he says, um, he says, don't believe every spirit. We read elsewhere, test the spirits, right? In, in Paul's writings, Paul knows that there was a need to for discernment within the church. He writes to the Thessalonians and tells them to test all things because not everything is the same. You need to test things and then hold fast that which is good. When you say something uh, or say someone has discerning tastes, right? If you, you have a, a friend and you might say about them, oh, they have very discerning tastes. Uh, what you might mean is that they, they like the best. They only like the best. You know, someone who has discerning tastes is not an omnivore. You know, they like, they like the finer things in life. They won't eat the garbage that other people might like, right? John and Paul and the other apostles, they want the church to have very discerning tastes when spiritual things are concerned. 
and only take in the very best. We want to be Christians who hear counterfeit truths, fanciful lies, spiritual deceits, and then be able to say, no, 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 that's not for us. I can't stomach it. I, I spit it out of my mouth. We don't want anything like that. That's worldly thinking, worldly wisdom. It's a counterfeit. It's not God's wisdom. Christians ought to have discerning tastes. Let's keep this metaphor of food going, right? Are you hungry yet? I should have, I should have saved this one for Pollock Sunday. John, John doesn't want Christians to be babies that put everything in their mouth. He wants them to be discerning, mature consumers of spiritual material. Now, there's an element of discerning that works with both food and spiritual food. Eat with friends. Um, fast food is made for people eating alone in their car, uh, and, and, and that's not for people with discerning tastes, okay? Those aren't discerning tastes, but a good meal, a great meal, deserves a tablecloth and a lot of plates and the good dishes and all of that. But what's most important about a really good meal is good company. You don't, you don't go and eat that by yourself. You can have Taco Bell by yourself, but when you're with people, like, put the tablecloth down. Now, that doesn't show up here in John as much, but when Peter and Paul talk about discerning spiritual truth, they absolutely understand this discernment to take place in community. And when John is writing here in four, uh, chapter 4, and he says, you know, test the spirits, or he says, don't believe every spirit, he's talking to a group of people and not just a bunch of disconnected individuals. He's talking to his family that do things together. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul talks about prophesying in church and speaking in tongues. And he puts some real limits on the Corinthians uh, on what they had going for them as sort of a free-for-all service where individuals did what individuals wanted and that was about it. And there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of order. He says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others, plural, judge. Now, having this idea of being judged for what you say, that may seem totally sensible to some of you, and it is, but it is, again, foreign to a culture that has made tolerance its chief virtue and discernment its most egregious vice. Paul says, uh, let, let them speak and then everyone else judge them. I'm like, ooh, that wouldn't work well in the 21st century. Paul says, if, if someone says something and they claim that it's prophecy, judge that person's words, measure it, weigh it. Don't just nod and smile. Don't just do the Christian spiritual, mmm, thing like that's weird as if that what they said was good it might not be good the church collectively under the leadership of the apostles and then those who, whom the apostles appointed had a role of judging of discerning the spirits of testing all things and holding fast that which is good it's why when you go back to the historic confessions and creeds of the church originally uh, most of them began with we believe we believe in God, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his son, etc. That has shifted, actually, in most cases, to read, I believe. And in more creedal, liturgical churches than ours, there's actually quite a bit of friendly debate about which one should be preferred. Um, the standard has become, I believe, emphasizing personal faith, which has its value, of course. But it's interesting to note that no one has ever even thought about changing the Lord's prayer to my Father who art in heaven. And we see that there is a need for worship to be collective. And I, I believe we should see that there's a need for discernment to also be done in the collective. The church councils were groups of churches. They were making rules on doctrines, not for individuals, but for the church as a whole. And there are things that we believe in order to be Christians. And then there are lots and lots and lots of I believes that lie outside of orthodoxy. 
Now skip ahead a little bit and look at verse 6. See where we're headed here. John says, we are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Notice the we language instead of the I or you language. We are of God. John tells the church we are of God. Who is he talking about? He is either referring to the whole church, including the recipients of the letter, or he is referring to the apostles who had been first entrusted with the gospel and with keeping sound doctrine. Now in Acts chapter 2, when the church was firstborn, you read that the, the new converts were uh, continuing these daily habits with the new believers. What they continued in, in Acts 2.42 it says they continued daily in the apostles' doctrines. Okay, there, there was a hierarchical structure. Without living apostles today, I do not believe we have living apostles today. We go to the apostles' doctrine. We go to the, what, what do the apostles write down? What did they approve as doctrinal authority? The scriptures. We go to the scriptures because the scriptures in the New Testament contain the doctrines, which is just a fancy word for saying the teachings, of the apostles. And it's clear that we still value their authority, the apostles' authority, by the way we value scripture. We don't read it like we would read other books. We have discerning tastes, and we only intake the finest things. And the finest spiritual meal is scripture. Um, you know, we don't read the Bible like you read magazines and blogs. We don't value the early church fathers' writings the same way that we value the writings of Peter, Paul, and John. Now, at the very beginning of this book, or this letter, 1 John, John spoke of the word of life as something that he had seen and touched and heard. That's how he started. This was his claim of apostolic leadership. It's the same line of thinking that Paul takes in 1 Corinthians when he defends his role as an apostle. He says, hey, I saw Jesus too. I was just late. <laughs> and in, in Acts, the 11 apostles uh, want to choose the 12th to replace Judas. And the qualifications for someone was an eyewitness of the resurrection who had been with them since the baptism. All this to say that the church was aware that the authority in teaching did not come from individuals at their desks. There were no armchair theologians. There were no Christians who were experts in very narrow fields disagreeing with every other Christian but arguing their position on internet forums night and day. Okay, That is not the way the church works. The church looked to the teaching of the apostles for correct doctrine and they, looked, they, they submitted to that authority together the church collectively received that doctrine as it was taught. Now today, again, we have the apostles' teaching in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit, who inspired the words that were written, has also divinely preserved these teachings for us, for the church, so that we can receive truth in the same way. When John says, test the spirits, or when he says, don't trust all the spirits, we obey this by measuring claims against the scripture. That's what we test it against. Judge with righteous judgment. Test the spirits. Test all things. Hold fast that which is good. We do this by measuring claims to scripture. Now, John's little children, they didn't have the leather-bound New King James Version, did they? And so John gives a sort of standard with which to measure the spirits and to test the spirits and see if they measure up to the high standard of the apostles' teaching as the Holy Spirit led the apostles into all, all truth. What John offers here is sort of like a creed. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a high bar to measure all 
Christological doctrine against. He answers the question, how can you tell a false spirit? And the answer he gives is, know the right Jesus. That's what he says. If you know the right Jesus, you'll, you'll be able to spot the false spirits just like that. And this is really helpful, and I'm glad he went this direction, because what most of us would want John to write, I imagine, is what the lies are, so that we can know them when we see them, so we can shut them down. It's like, show me all the counterfeits. Show me all of Satan's strategies. And like Paul just says, as kind of an aside, he's like, we're not ignorant of his devices. And it's like, I don't know, maybe sometimes I am. Uh, but, you know, we want to say like, let me see the enemy's plans. And John says, wait, you know, or the church would ask John, John, what are the lying spirits saying? And he basically says, that's definitely not where your focus needs to be. And you've heard this before, I'm sure, that the way to spot a counterfeit bill is by knowing the real thing. You know, you handle thousands of real $100 bills. You'll know the fake one when it comes. Also, if you handle thousands of real $100 bills, I'd like to talk to you about our building fund. But know the truth. If you know the truth, you'll recognize lies. And in verses 2 and 3, let's read this. Verse 2 in 1 John 4 it says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Jesus Christ is the truth that you must know in order to be able to identify and reject the lies that you will inevitably encounter. When Jesus says, I am the truth, it seems that John took him literally and sees Christ as the standard by which to measure all things. Now, this can be difficult because just like someone can say, I'm spiritual, and you ought to wonder what spirit they are of. Um, you know, there are plenty of people who talk about Jesus and say they know Jesus, maybe even say they love Jesus, and they, they can sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. But they are not talking about the same person you are. They're not talking about John's best friend. Um, it's possible that they're talking about the wrong Jesus. Now, as, as you know, this verse in chapter 4 is not the only thing that John has to say about Jesus of Nazareth, not by a long shot. He wrote a whole book about him that we've studied before we studied this one, the Gospel of John. And in John's Gospel, Jesus is presented as God. And that is a... That is a, a, a truth that is presented with more clarity in John's gospel than in any of the other gospels, in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. John is intent in that gospel as presenting Jesus Christ as God of very God. Now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're all talking about the same person, but for John, it was essential that Jesus of Nazareth, Mary's son, be presented first and foremost as the Word who is God, who is in the beginning, by whom all things are created, the one who existed in glory with his Father from eternity past. John says all this and more about Jesus in the gospel. And again, he says it more emphatically with more clarity than any of the other gospel writers. Um, and he, even in this letter, he is already presented Jesus as eternal God in chapter one. That's how he started the book. But here he leans heavy on the other side of Christology. John says that the measure, the standard that you have to judge a spirit by is not just whether they acknowledge that Jesus was divine, 
but also that he was human, that he came in the flesh. And we talked a little bit about this when we addressed the Antichrist issue in chapter 2. bears repeating. Virtually every ancient heresy the church has faced, which, of course, the ancient heresies are just repackaged, rebranded, and represented, you know, in modern times as well. So you can expand that to every heresy. Every ancient heresy the church has faced has to do with the issue of the person of Jesus Christ. And modern heresies are really just... You know, the new and improved version of the ancient heresies, proving the, the, you know, the, the truth of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. John essentially fits orthodoxy into this one box, the full divinity and full humanity of Jesus Christ. Heretics will lean one way or the other and fall over the edge. Let me show you what I mean here. Gnostics uh, were uh, a group of people showed up in the early church and believed a lot of really weird things, but one of the weird things they believed was they acknowledged the divinity of Christ, though they also had 29 other divine beings, so we're really, really not talking about the same thing. But they denied the humanity of Christ. They denied that Christ came in the flesh. And John says, if someone's in your church preaching that doctrine, they are not of Christ. That's the spirit of Antichrist. Uh, the heresy of adoptionism came. It was condemned in the 200s. That said, Jesus was a man, but he became God. God liked him so much, and he's like, you can come in. We've got, we've got room for one more, you know, in the Godhead. This is essentially what Mormonism teaches. Uh, Arianism, that's a famous one, the belief that Jesus was a created being and not the divine creator, that he had a beginning in time. This acknowledged a physical Jesus, but not a divine Jesus. You see him falling off the other side of the horse, right? Um, docetism was another heresy that was kind of absorbed by the Gnostics. They said that the physical body of Jesus wasn't a physical body. It was an illusion. It was a phantom. He didn't leave footprints. It wasn't real. And against that heresy, John is saying, if they say that he didn't come in the flesh, they're not of God. They do not believe in the same Jesus that you do. You see how these ideas go back and forth, and they have continued to go back and forth throughout history. And each heresy, and we do not want to use that word lightly, each heresy always deals with the nature of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Jesus is fully God and fully man. To use the words of the Nicene Creed, which came about in the Council of Nicaea when Arianism was officially condemned. Uh, it's also where Santa Claus punched Arius, one of my favorite moments in church history. You can look that up. He um, wasn't called Santa Claus at the time, St. Nicholas. Um, the Nicene Creed came out of the Council of Nicaea and says, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, by whom all things were made who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost and of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. From hence he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead. Orthodoxy hinges on Jesus. So when people would come into John's church and say, I've got a word from the Lord, John wants the church to be discerning and judge that person's prophecy based on their doctrine of Jesus. 
The spirit of Antichrist, the false, fake spirituality that was coming against the church from within the church was a spirituality that was more spiritual than Jesus. It was the Gnostic or Docetist idea that Jesus couldn't have been physical because the physical is bad and icky and stinky and dirty. Jesus would never descend that far. The gospel rejects that. We reject that. You know, they, they believe that the physical is bad and the spiritual is good. John rejects that. The gospel rejects that. The doctrine of the incarnation shows us that the physical world that God created is very good. And even though it is fallen, God intends to redeem it. When you make Jesus less than human, you lose that. We must, must return to Jesus Christ often and always. Not only because it is in Christ where all the riches of God are made available to us, but also because Jesus is, as we sing, our one defense. He's our defense against the lies that would lead us astray. We pray to Jesus and sing to him, Be thou my battle shield. It is in knowing Jesus that we can discern the falsehoods of the world, the lies of the enemy. He is the truth. And when John brings up something, you know, a bit sobering, like the lies of the enemy or the concept of darkness and sin and hell, he, he ends almost always on a high note. He brings in hope. And he does that once more in verse 4. He said, lies are there, don't believe them, bad things happen, antichrist, big red warning flag and, and alarm bells. And he's, he said, not everything is from God, not everything is worth believing. There's lies, there's an enemy that will lie to you. But he says here, but you are of God. Verse 4, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world. Therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. John is telling his little children, I want you to know that the world is dangerous and that you're safe if you're with us. You are in a battle. There is an enemy. But you're victorious if you stay where you need to be. This is John's father's heart for his flock. A father doesn't hide his children from the world, from, from giving them a realistic view of the world and all its ugliness. John isn't sheltering this church or giving them a Pollyanna view of reality where everything is fine. No, he knows that's not true. He says, there's lies. And you're old enough to know this, kids. There's spirits that aren't good. But he's just as deliberate to let them know that's not your team over there. You're of God, little children. You have overcome them. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Yes, there's false spirits and they lose. Who is in you? The Holy Spirit of God. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So you need to be discerning of what is anti-Christ, against Jesus. But you do not need to have fear. And like John could, could say, know the world is dangerous and know that you're safe. You know, we can say the world is still dangerous. There are still false spirits, false prophets. There are still lies. There is still a whole world that is under the sway of the wicked one. There is still an enemy of your souls that roams about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And we can also say the name of the Lord is still a strong tower and the righteous run into it and are saved. We can also say he who lives in me is greater than he who is in the world. You know, looking at the real biblical Jesus, the one who they killed, we can say that's where I want to be with him. 
the one who died for our sins and has risen and sits now at the right hand of God, looking at this Jesus will give you this proper balance of discernment. The world killed Jesus. If that doesn't show you what kind of world you live in, I don't know what will. And John says, they're of the world, they talk like the world. You shouldn't be surprised at them destroying the body of Jesus. That's what the world has done. But you're not of that world. Jesus conquered death. If that doesn't show you what kind of God we have, I don't know what will. So John, in saying there is a need for discernment, leads us to this place where we see our need to return to Jesus in order to defend the faith against counterfeits. We return to scripture, the writings of the apostles, in order to receive the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And as always, 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 we return to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. With eyes fixed there, we see the world as it is, and we don't fear it. Let's pray. Jesus, we look to you as our one defense, as our shield, as our sword for the fight, as our only hope, as the author and finisher of our faith. We pray, God, that the Spirit in us would be producing the fruit of the Spirit in our lives and giving us all the gifts needed for ministry. We pray that we would be a people able to discern. We pray that just as you've promised to lead us into all truth, you would, we would see you doing that now, that we would have that evidence of your spirit in us when we see falsehood for what it is. We see truth outshine error. Lord, we love you. We pray that as you lead your church into all truth, we would uh, glory more and more in the person of Christ. We would fall more and more in love with the person of Christ. Um, that we would be... Uh, less and less distracted by other things, by counterfeit things, and have our eyes only on Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen. 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 Go ahead and stand up.